television and he says how he's finding it very hard to be the father of his son. Matthew, he loved him, uh, but the damage that he was causing, he felt like he was helpless just watching Matthew's life go down and down and down and was a mess and a complete train wreck. And he didn't know what to do. And a week earlier, uh, this man appeared on television. Uh, His name is Brian Cousins, and he's the father of AFL star um, Ben Cousins. And again, he he came on television and he felt powerless because he, he, he was watching his son and his son was in this spiral of drug addiction and self-harm and the life that came with that. And uh, he felt helpless. He was powerless. He didn't know what to do. He didn't know how to help his son. And these two men appeared on national television basically appealing to their two sons in front of a national audience um, to somehow change. Now, I've got to say, um, I love being a dad. Uh, as you would have seen, just flashing up on the screen, that wasn't intentional. There were three kids that were very large uh, on the screen just before church, Hannah, Maddie and Harry. I love being a dad. And I'm sure that Brian Cousins and Bert Newton, they love being dads. Uh, no matter what your son would ever do, I cannot imagine never not loving your son. No matter what he was doing, no matter what he was like, But fatherhood sometimes involves great heartache, doesn't it? I mean, what do you do as a dad when your son goes off the rails like that? What do you do when his behaviour is not only damaging himself, but his family and the other people around him and innocent bystanders? I mean, what do you do when that's your son? And actually, some of us are wondering, well, what, what do you do when that son is me. What do we do when we're wayward sons? Or daughters, in fact. <laughs> what, how is it that God treats wayward sons and daughters? It's a big question that comes up in Isaiah. And I think I've just given away a bit of the answer. But do you remember, because we've come to Isaiah, and it's about God's people, his, his nation in the Old Testament, and they were slaves in Egypt, and can you remember what is it that God told Pharaoh, what God told Moses to say to Pharaoh? Can you remember what he told him to say without looking at the screen? What did he say? Well, he said this. Have a look. This is what the Lord says to Pharaoh. Israel is my firstborn son. And I told you, let my son go so that he might worship me. But you refuse to let him go. So I will kill your firstborn son. God says to Pharaoh of Egypt. Because Israel was God's son, his precious firstborn son. And he'd rescued his son out of slavery in Egypt. He brought him into the promised land. All of those people are considered to be God's son. And God's terrible judgment fell upon Pharaoh for their enslavery of God's people throughout that period. And now we get to Isaiah and it's 800 years later. And it's the 8th century uh, B.C., And in fact, we know exactly when it is because Isaiah chapter 6 verse 1 says that Isaiah was called to be a prophet in the year that King Uzziah of Judah died. It's 740 BC. And for the last 52 years, King Uzziah had reigned over the throne of Jerusalem. And he'd reigned in a time where the southern kingdom of Judah was in massive time of peace and prosperity. It was wonderful. At this point, the southern kingdom, the two tribes at the bottom... 
And the northern kingdom of Israel, the ten tribes at the top of God's people, had split into two. It was a time of wealth and prosperity, of peace. The armies were built up. The city was built up. It was a beautiful time. And yet, have a look. Have a look at Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1, how Isaiah's vision begins. Have a look with me. This is what Isaiah says. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1. The vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, the kings of Judah, the southern kingdom. Isaiah says, Listen, heavens, and pay attention, earth, for the Lord has spoken. I have raised up children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. I mean, here's Bert Newton and Brian Cousins basically appearing on national television and talking about bringing all of Australia to witness the rebelliousness of their sons. And yet God, he doesn't just have a national TV audience in mind. He says to the whole heavens and the whole earth, look at the rebelliousness of my one and only son, Israel. And so our question is, what is it that God's going to do with his rebellious son? And we want to know. Do you know why we want to know this? Because we are God's rebellious, wayward sons and daughters. And we want to know, how does God treat wayward sons and daughters? Why don't I pray um, as we come to this book? Let's pray. Um, Our dear Heavenly Father, as we come to Isaiah, Father, we pray that you would reveal uh, what our hearts are like in relationship to you. But you would also help us to see what you're like how it is that you treat wayward sons and daughters um, like all of us here. Father, help us to see clearly your character and your ways in this world. And we pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, often we think just, just how wayward had Israel become. I mean, how, how off the rails had they become as God's people? And, and exactly that is what the opening chapters of Isaiah are about. Again and again, Isaiah talks about the ways in which God's people have gone off the rails. He'd raised up this nation, he brought them to the promised land, and yet, look at what Isaiah says. Look at verse 2. He says this. He says, Listen, heavens, and pay attention, earth, for the Lord has spoken. I've raised children and brought them up, but they've rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's feeding trough. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. God says that his son is more stupid than a farm animal. He says at least a donkey knows where its trough is. At least it knows where it gets its food and at least it knows where its pen is. But Israel, my son, they are like a stupid donkey. Can you imagine what it felt like to be described as a stupid donkey? Israel, my son, that's you. A donkey that does not know anything. His wayward son. Look at verse 4. He says, O sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, brood of evildoers, depraved children. What would make God describe his own sons and daughters like that? What would make you go onto television to speak of your son like that? What would make you declare to the heavens and the earth that your son was a brood of evildoers going around causing havoc? Why would he say that? 
We'll come over to chapter 2, verse 6. We're going to be doing a bit of flicking tonight. Come over to chapter 2, verse 6. And here he spells out what it is that Israel are doing. The house of Jacob. You see there, chapter 2, verse 6? He says, For you have abandoned your people, the house of Jacob. Now, why is it important that he calls them the house of Jacob? Um, do you remember, you might remember in Genesis, remember there's the story of Jacob and Esau? Remember Jacob is crafty and he basically tricks his brother Esau into getting the blessing from his father? Do you remember that? And so Jacob is basically the character of the scheming, self-made man in Genesis. And eventually, when he's at his lowest point, he himself receives God's blessing. And Jacob changes his name to Israel. Do you remember that? And so you've got proud Jacob and humble Israel after that. And so Isaiah was saying to the people of God, you are proud, self-reliant Jacob. You've gone wayward. You don't trust me anymore. And what did that look like? Well, one of the first things it looked like is they started to mix their religion with the religions of other nations. Um, Have a look at verse 6, what they did. It says, For you have abandoned your people, the house of Jacob, because they're full of divination from the east and of fortune tellers like the Philistines. They're in league with foreigners. God's people started to think that they could find out the mind of God through, well, manipulation and magic. They started to go to fortune tellers. They started to read the paper on Sunday morning and look at their star signs instead of reading the Bible. They started to go to witch doctors instead of uh, listening to God's people. They'd also, not only that, they'd become proud and materialistic. See that? Look at verse 7. It says, Their land is full of silver and gold, and there's no limit to their treasures. They thought, we, we live in Sydney. Gosh, there's all these wonderful things to enjoy. We don't need God. Who needs him? And they don't trust him anymore. And one of the ways that they, they demonstrated that they didn't trust God anymore is you know who they made an alliance with to protect themselves against Assyria? Egypt. Egypt. The very nation that had caused them to be slaves only a few hundred years before, they now trust them instead of God. It's unbelievable. Look at verse 7. It says, Their land is full of horses and there is no limit to their chariots. And in case you're wondering, how did I work this out? Well, if you go a little bit further on Isaiah chapter 31, the prophet says this. He says, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and who depend on horses. They trust in the abundance of their chariots. In other words, their fighter jets and their ships. And then their large number of horsemen. Let's call them their tanks. They don't look to the Holy One of Israel and they do not seek the Lord's help. God's wayward son didn't even trust him anymore. And not only that, they started making their own gods. <laughs> look at verse 8. It says, Their land is full of idols, false gods. They bow down to the work of their own hands, to what their fingers have made. And so humanity is brought low, and man is humbled. Isaiah says, Do not forgive them. Can you believe that? Isaiah says, God's wayward son is so wayward... Don't even forgive them, he says. And you know Israel at this point, weren't they meant to be a beacon to the nations? Weren't they meant to be God's people showing what a just society looks like? Weren't they meant to be caring for the needy and the oppressed and, and the poor? Well, 
they became drinking heroes who couldn't care less about the poor. Come over to chapter 5, uh, verse 11. So flick over there. Chapter 5, verse 11. You might recognize this. This is what they'd become. They were meant to be protecting the poor. Verse 11, chapter 5. Isaiah says, Woe to those who rise early in the morning in pursuit of beer, who linger into the evening inflamed by wine. At their feast they have lyre and harp and tambourine and flute and wine and Beyonce and Jay-Z and whoever else. And they do not perceive the Lord's actions and they do not see the work of his hands. Look at verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own opinion and clever in their own sight. God's son thought he was fantastic, all this stuff he was doing. Yet look at verse 22. Isaiah says, Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and are fearless at mixing beer, who acquit the guilty for a bribe, and deprive the innocent of justice. If you wanted to get off your crimes in Israel, it was easy. You just paid off the judge. They were corrupt. They were too busy getting drunk to worry about the poor. 52 years of materialistic prosperity under the reign of King Uzziah, with peace and security and no threats, and Israel and Judah become corrupt and evil. They mix the religion of God with the religion of others, fortune tellers. They acquired more and more things. And when it came to caring for the poor, they couldn't care less. Outright failure. You know what they did? They went onto Facebook and they clicked on Make Poverty History. I mean, that's fantastic. We love that site. Like, 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 like. But when it came to their money, well, they spent that on cruises and beers for the weekend instead of the poor. It's just Australia today, yeah? The lucky country. The character of the wealthy society. But this is God's country. (laughs) Not Australia. Australia is not God's country. I mean, this is Jerusalem. This is Judea. This is the king who was meant to reign over God's nation. This was God's nation who was meant to live in righteousness and holiness. And here they are living like pagans. They couldn't see God and live, could they? And you know Isaiah, at this point, he was given the job of preaching to this group of people. Who would want that job? Not me. And what does he say? Come to chapter 6, verse 5. This is what he says. He doesn't want to speak. Chapter 6, verse 5. Woe is me, Isaiah says, for I'm ruined, because I'm a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips. And because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah is given this vision of the glory of God. And he can't speak. What is it do you think you'd say if you met God? What do you think you'd say? Do you think you'd go up to him and say, Oh, g'day mate. Awesome. Great work on those clouds. Sun's pretty good. Do you want to come in my place for a barbie? You know, the sort of Aussie g'day sort of to God sort of thing. Do you think that's how we speak to God? When you saw God in all of his glory, in all of his magnificence, in all of his holiness, what would we say? 
we'd say, woe is me. I'm an unclean man. And I dwell amongst a people of uncleanness compared to you. You live in a society like ours? And that's exactly what you'd say. You'd say exactly what Isaiah says. And how does he talk about his guilt? He says, well, I'm a man of unclean lips. And I'm ruined. And I'm silenced. I can't say anything. He says, I can't join in with the angels saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He can't say that. He's ruined. He's silenced. He's unworthy of that. He can't praise God. He's unworthy in mind and in life. Basically, Isaiah is saying, I'm a wayward son. And I dwell amongst a people who are wayward sons and daughters. I'm an unclean man. And I dwell amongst a people of uncleanness. Now, are we any different to the people of Judah in the 8th century BC? Could have been written for us, right? Putting our trust in our wealth. I've got stuff on it. God, worshipping other gods, heroes at drinking wine and beer and i don't know why you'd mix beer by the way but someone might be able to tell me that later giving lip service to caring for the poor but that's about it i mean should god should he listen to us his wayward sons well you know what he stops listening to the worship of of his people and when they start to pray he closes his ears Have a look at chapter 1, verse 10, and you'll see. It's amazing to hear this out of the mouth of God when they come to worship. Chapter 1, verse 10. Isaiah says, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What are all your sacrifices to me? Asked the Lord. These are the ones he'd asked them to perform, by the way. I've had enough of burnt offerings and rams and of the fat of well-fed cattle. I have no desire for the blood of bulls, lambs or male goats. When you have come to appear before me, who requires this from you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing useless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me, Judah. New moons and Sabbaths and the calling of solemn assemblies, I cannot stand iniquity with a festival. God is saying, do you think this religious show, Judah, is going to make up For your lifestyle. No. Look at verse 14. I hate your new moons and proscribed festivals. They become a burden to me. I'm tired of putting up with them. When you lift up your hands in prayer, I'll refuse to look at you. Even if you offer countless prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. God won't pay attention to the sacrifices of his people in the temple anymore because when they're outside the temple, they're worshipping idols. He won't even listen to their prayers anymore. So when, he, when, they, when, he, when they pray, he says, I've had enough. Now, there's actually so, there's other stuff going on in the world at this point, so I'm going to change pace for a minute. Uh, I don't know if you realise this, but um, there's a lot going on in the world at this point. And this is the part of the world that we're talking about in 740 BC, except not with these nations. So in 2013, these are the nations around about. So you've got Egypt over here, you've got the Nile River, 
Saudi Arabia, Iran is over here, Iraq is between uh, the Euphrates River and the Tigris River, and you've got Turkey up to the north. Okay, That's a world map today. If you were to go back to the 8th century, this is how it looked. Right? By the time we get to 740 BC, the massive superpower that had arisen up in, this, in the world at that time was Assyria. And the guy who was leading Assyria from its capital, Nineveh, was a man named Tiglath-Pileser III. Now, you have to conquer the world if that's your name. All right. But Tiglath-Pileser III, he wanted to assert his power. He'd, he'd just recently become the king of Assyria, and so he decides that he is going to basically sweep down to the south of his kingdom and grow the kingdom of Assyria. Now, at this point, at 740 BC, as you can see, he, he controls the green area, and he's already taken Syria. He's already defeated that nation, as you can see on the map. And as you can see on the map, other nations are under threat. So you've got Israel, the northern kingdom of God's people. You've got Judah, the southern kingdom of God's people. And you've got Egypt over here are under threat. And this is what happens in 722 BC. The Assyrian armies, they come down under Tiglath-Pileser III and they wipe out the northern tribes of Israel, all ten and they'll never exist again. In 722 BC, the ten northern tribes of Israel totally destroyed. But Tiglath-Pileser III isn't finished, but his reign soon comes to an end, and he soon wants to sweep down here, and that's exactly what he does. And by the time you get to... Oh, you may be wondering, why is this sort of section in the middle vacant, the Arabian Desert? It's because of the Arabian Desert. Right? No one wants to conquer the Arabian Desert. Right? If you want the Arabian Desert, come and get it. <laughs> That's fine. Right? But what happens by 701 BC is King Sennacherib comes down and takes this part of the world, conquers Egypt, conquers the other nations, and almost destroys the southern kingdom of Judah. He comes in and he destroys 46 Judean cities. And Jerusalem just survives, just survives in 701 BC. These are bleak times for God's wayward sons. Because now do you think King Sennacherib of Assyria, do you think that he thought he was working for God at this point? Keep reading in Isaiah. (laughs) Yeah, maybe he did. But um, as he comes down, we realise that he wants to dominate the world. But God is using him and his people, to judge his own wayward son. God sends Assyria to judge the people of Israel and the people of Judah. It's a hard time. And you know the survivors? They're reading this book. And they wonder, is there any future for us? And it's a picture of utter humiliation. Uh, Look at chapter 1, verse 5. Isaiah paints the picture for those who are left. And he paints it like this, 1 verse 5. Why do you want more beatings, Judah? Why do you keep on rebelling? The whole head is hurt and the whole heart is sick. From the sole of your foot even to the head, no spot is uninjured. Wounds, welts and festering sores, not cleansed, bandaged or soothed with oil. Isaiah pictures Israel's wayward son as a beaten up son. Look at verse 7. He says, your land is desolate. Your cities burn with fire. Foreigners devour your fields before your very eyes. A desolation demolished by foreigners. 
daughter Zion is abandoned, like a shelter in a vineyard, like a shack in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we would be like Sodom and we would resemble Gomorrah. Do you know the difference between them and Sodom and Gomorrah? In Sodom and Gomorrah, when God brought his judgment, there was no one left. There's a remnant, there's a survivors here. And God has abandoned them in judgment and he has humiliated them. And Isaiah is saying that. They're humiliated. They're overtaken. They're like a shack in a cucumber field. And I thought, of course. Didn't you think that as you read it? They're exactly like a shack in a cucumber field. That's exactly what I thought of. What do you think he means? I think he means that they're overrun. <laughs> They've been taken over. Like a shack, you know the cucumbers, they just, do they grow over the top of things? I'm hoping they do because that's the image, right? And Isaiah says, you're like a stupid donkey. You're like the new Sodom of Gomorrah. You're like a dying tree that's been burnt under the judgment of God. How would God deal with his wayward sons and daughters? In humiliating judgment. That's how. And so if you were reading, imagine this. Imagine you were reading and you were one of the survivors. Sennacherib had just come down in 701 BC and conquered, conquered uh, Jerusalem almost. You'd be, you'd be thinking, I know why that happened. Because we've been a rebellious son. They knew exactly why it had happened. Now at this point, you may be wondering, gosh, this is all a bit depressing. Is there any future for God's wayward sons and daughters? Like, why did Brian Cousins and Bert Newton go on television, do you think? They went on television because they wanted a future for their sons. They loved their sons. They wanted their sons to change. Did God's people have a future? Is he just going to leave his son in judgment and Jerusalem in ruins? No, there's a hope. There's a new spring, as Cameron talked about. Have a look at chapter 1, verse 18. It says this. It says, Come, let us discuss this, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they will be like wool. How's God going to do that? How's God going to bring cleansing and forgiveness? How's he going to make their red crimson sins as white as snow, as white as wool? We don't, we don't know. And how about the city of Jerusalem and the mountain it sits upon? Zion, is there a future for that city? It lies in ruins. We'll have a look at chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. This is amazing. This is the vision that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, so this is the time to come, the mountain of the Lord's house will be established at the top of the mountains and will be raised above the hills. Can you believe this? All nations will stream to it. And many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us about his ways, so that we may walk in his paths. For instruction will go out from Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. (laughs) I mean, could you imagine being a survivor in beaten up Jerusalem and hearing that there was actually a future for your city like that? that actually your city would be lifted up. And not only would it be raised up, that all the nations would come to this city. And when they come to this city, they would hear the word of the Lord, and the word of the Lord would raise, go out from this city, 
and it would be a place of peace and justice, a place where every person from every nation would have the opportunity to meet God. Can you imagine how it felt to have that glorious city painted when you were lying in this one? Salvation will come out of judgment. It will. There is a future for God's wayward sons. Now you know that about 700 years after this, there's a certain guy who came into the city of Jerusalem. And you know he was an obedient son. He wasn't a wayward son. He always obeyed his father. But do you know what the, the twist in all of this is? The amazing twist it was that it wasn't the people of Jerusalem that would be dangled on a cross, but God's own son. He would be abandoned and humiliated under the judgment of his own father. Do you know for you and me that Jesus became like a shack in a cucumber field, overrun? Jesus became like a stupid donkey. Jesus became like the new Sodom and Gomorrah. Jesus became like a dying tree. He who knew no sin became sin for us, so that in him we would become the righteousness of God. He'd be surrounded not by Assyrian soldiers, but by Roman ones. And he would experience the disgust that God felt towards his wayward son in the 8th century for you and for me. But you know what? There's more to it than that. The, when the, and I wanted to show you this, and you may, not, you may have to come with me on this one, so I want you to concentrate just for a second, okay? Is you know there's another twist. Is that when Isaiah says that there's actually a glorious future for this mountain, Zion, and he would lift it up, I think that Jesus is talking about, this is actually pointing to Jesus himself. Because remember, Zion is going to be the place where the nations would stream in. Zion would be the place where the word of God would come, go out. And I think what Jesus does in John's gospel is he says, I'm the new temple. I'm Zion. I'm the place that would be lifted up. I'm the place where people would stream in from the nations and hear the word of God. That's what Jesus is saying about himself. Come come to John chapter 12, and I'm going to finish with this. Jesus is transferring his role and calling himself the new Zion. Look at John 12, verse 23. You can tell me later if you think this is right. Jesus says this, John 12, verse 23. He says, Now the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now is the moment of my glory, Jesus says. And, and And what is that glory? Look at verse 32. He says, when I am lifted up in glory, I will draw all people to myself. I think Jesus thinks that he's the new Zion. I'm the one who's being lifted up and I will draw all nations to myself. Why does he think that? Because the Greeks, who's Greek here? There's a few and some, yeah, thanks Zach, there you go. Yeah, the Greeks have started to come and listen to Jesus. The nations have started to come to Zion. And he says, when I'm lifted up in glory, I will draw all people to myself. What's Jesus talking about? Look at verse 33. He said this to signify the kind of death that he was going to die. Where do we see Jesus in all of his glory? 
Where do we see Jesus in all of his magnificence? We see it in his death. It's the death of Jesus that the last days begin. It's in the death of Jesus that the nations get to come to God and their sins are cleansed and they are washed clean and they become whiter than snow. It's in the death of Jesus that God welcomes wayward sons and daughters like you and me back to God. He is the new Zion and he welcomes you back. See, Isaiah's vision is that Jerusalem that was destroyed would become the new Jerusalem. And in this new city, God would draw people to himself. And Jesus says, I am that. Now, we're all wayward sons, yeah? As I look at my own heart, and as I know some of you, most of you, I look around the room, and I look into my own heart, and I know that we put our trust in our wealth, just like Judah. We think, ah, if I've got enough stuff and enough experiences, I don't need God, do I? There's some of us that worship other gods. There's some of us who are heroes at drinking and and drugs. There are some of us who give lip service to caring for the poor, but that's about it. We deserve the judgment of God. We're wayward sons and daughters. But you know what? No matter what you've done, no matter how wayward you've gone, God welcomes you back. Because when Jesus was lifted up on the cross for you, he drew you to himself. He washed you, red and crimson in your sin as you are, white as snow. He's the new Zion, and he brings you back to God if you want him. We deserve judgment. We are wayward sons and daughters. But Jesus was judged for you in your place so that you could live in God's city forever. Uh, Why don't I pray? Let's pray. Um, Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the just judge of all the earth. Father, we thank you that you don't let wayward sons and daughters like us get away with our sin, that you are the just judge and that you will bring your just judgment. Father, as we look at Judah and its many sins and its idolatry and as you brought the awesome judgment of the nation of Assyria upon them. Father, we can't help but be humbled in that if we were there, we would have done exactly the same thing. Father, we are all wayward sons and daughters. We all have different stories. You've gathered us here to hear that even though we are red in our sin, that because Jesus is lifted up, then he can draw all of us to himself. Father, we know that there are people here from every nation, from many nations on the earth. And Father, you welcome people from all nations. You welcome anyone who comes to your Son who was lifted up in glory to pay for our sins. Father, I pray that there would be no one here tonight who feels like a wayward son or daughter who hasn't accepted your mercy and your forgiveness and your grace in the glorious cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray this in his name. Amen.